The Blessings of Abraham, Chapter 1 Alone with God in a world without Zion, young Abraham in Ur. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Doctrine and Covenants, 88, 63. Heading, In the Beginning. The biblical story of Abraham begins in Ur of the Chaldees, where we are first introduced to Abraham only as an adult. Not a word is spared for his formative years of youth and preparation. Not so in other ancient sources, which take us back to his boyhood and birth, and even before, all the way back to the creation of the world, during which, as Genesis relates, God used the word good to describe the result of each successive creative period. With the creation of man, however, and with God's blessing pronounced upon them, God saw that his creation was very good. As to why it was now so, Genesis itself offers no explanation, but ancient rabbinic texts do. The Genesis passage teaches that the Holy One brought out all the souls of the righteous, the souls of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their future descendants, the souls of Israel, all they who would keep God's law. In this sense, the word world was created for the sake of Abraham and his wife Sarah, which is tantamount to saying that it was created for the sake of Israel, since they are the parents of all the people of the earth. And more than a mere beneficiary, Abraham was actually a participant with God in the creation, according to the rabbis. God created the world with Abraham, says rabbinic tradition. What motivated God to undertake the grand enterprise? Tradition insists that he acted out of hesed, a Hebrew word meaning, whose meaning includes loving kindness and mercy. The psalmist declared that the world is built on hesed, while the medieval Jewish scholar Moses Maimonides taught that all being is an act of divine chesed, for the universe has come into existence only by virtue of God's abundant grace or loving kindness. But another essential element of God's chesed is his loyalty to the covenant, which apparently was a factor even in the creation, for tradition indicates it was then when God first made a covenant with Abraham. Such traditions bears conspicuous resemblance to Abraham's own writings as restored in the book of Abraham, in which the patriarch reports being shown in vision a vast host of premortal spirits, among whom were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers, for he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good, and he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. Abraham then beheld how he and other noble spirits called gods in the book of Abraham participated with the Lord in the creation for the benefit of the future righteous. Latter-day prophets have further explained that Abraham and others were not only appointed and foreordained to their early missions, but trained and prepared to perform them. That Genesis may well have originally contained such information was indicated by Joseph Smith who said that the very first word of Genesis, altered long ago, originally spoke of a council of gods called forth by the head god before the creation of the world. Likewise, the prominent biblical scholar Nahum Sarna has emphasized that Genesis, as it has come down to us, is unique among all other near, ancient Near Eastern creation dramas in its failure to mention a gathering of gods before creation, Indicating, says Sarna, that anciently an account of the, that gathering was held, was had in ancient Israel also. 
But in Genesis, as we have it, Abraham is not mentioned until his due time in human history. The beginning of that human history took place in the most ideal and idyllic setting, the beautiful Garden of Eden planted for Adam and Eve by God, who then actually walked and talked with them there. A wealth of ancient tradition adds that the garden was what would later be some symbolically recreated on Jerusalem's Temple Mount, Zion, a place of supreme holiness, beauty, and perfection, a venue where gods and human beings associate. As one scholar explains, the notion of Zion as the first of God's creations, which is not explicit in the Bible, is reflected in rabbinic literature. Human history began, in a word, with Zion. But Zion's pristine glory was soon lost when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and were expelled, an event that turned out to be but the first in a series of escalating acts of mankind's disobedience. As the story unfolds in those earthly in the early chapters of Genesis, an era called primeval history, the errant human race seems bent on distancing itself ever further from its creator. An apparent exception is the brief mention of Enoch who walked with God and then was not, for God took him. But there is no explanation in Genesis of what that cryptic passage might mean beyond some kind of unique fellowship between Enoch and God. Nor did Enoch's experience turn the tide of future rebellions by the human race, with each new breath bringing its consequent punishment. Fortunately, each time there followed a divine manifestation of mercy, even after the flood, God spoke again in mercy to man. Heading, Pivotal Time, Pivotal Man Ominously, however, the pattern is broken with the Tower of Babel, whose builders set out to make a name for ourselves. In their rebellion against the Almighty, again there was punishment, but no word of divine mercy. As pointed out by German scholar Gerhard von Rad, it was a time of cosmic crisis. The whole primeval history seems to break off in shrill dissonance, and the question arises urgently, is God's relationship to the nations now finally broken? Is God's gracious forbearance now exhausted? Has God rejected the nations in wrath forever? That is the burdensome question which no thoughtful reader of chapter 11 can avoid. Indeed, one can say that our narrator intended by means of his whole plan of primeval history to raise precisely this question and to pose it throughout all eternity. The implication is that the world, again, seems to be ripe for destruction, which is precisely what the Apostle Peter, according to an early Christian source, reported about the word world of Abraham. The whole world was again overspread with errors, and for the hideousness of its crimes, destruction was ready for it, this time not by water, but fire, and already the scourge was hanging over the whole earth. Never in the troubled history of mankind has there been greater darkness and depravity. It was a world as far as Zion as possible. A more detailed description is given in the Book of Jubilees, an ancient Jewish source, which speaks in terms reminiscent of several Book of Mormon passages recounting the wickedness of the people and the hold that Satan had on their hearts. According to Jubilees, Noah's children began to fight one another and to take captive and to kill one another, to shed human blood on the earth, to consume blood and to build fortified cities, walls, towers, men to elevate themselves over peoples, and to set up the first kingdoms to go out to war, people against people, nations against nations, city against city, and everyone to do evil, to acquire weapons, and to teach warfare to their sons. Cities began to capture cities and to sell male and female slaves. 
They made molten images for themselves. Each one would worship the idol which he had made as his own molten image. They began to make statues, images, and unclean things. The spirits of the savage ones were helping and misleading them so that they would commit sins, impurities, and transgression. Prince Mastema, Satan, was exerting his power in effecting all these actions, and by means of the spirits he was sending to those who were placed in his control the ability to commit every kind of horror, error, sin, and every kind of transgression to corrupt, to destroy, and to shed blood on the earth. So expert did they become at fighting that, according to Israeli archaeologist Yigal Yadin, it was during this era that the art of warfare reached its highest standard, thanks in large measure to the chariot, one of the most important instruments on the field of battle and assuredly a formidable and decisive instrument of warfare. The image of the chariot struck terror in the hearts of the people everywhere. There was worldwide cruelty, inhospitality, insecurity, suspicion, making for a world of desperate wickedness. Who in that violent and cruel age could ever have guessed that generations earlier there had existed on this earth a society of perfect righteousness, peace, and love? It was Enoch City of Zion, known to us in the latter days thanks to the scriptures restored through Joseph Smith. Those scriptures speak also of the light that had once visibly emanated from the city, in contrast to the darkness that had settled over the planet by Abraham's day, when, according to the book of Rolls, mankind wandered in error and rebelled, and Satan certainly blinded their hearts and left them in darkness without light. As with so much of Abraham's life and times, the condition of his world looked both forward and backward, backward to the time of the flood when Satan had a great chain in his hands, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. And forward to the latter days, when, as Enoch had foretold, a veil of darkness shall cover the earth. As for Enoch himself, who had been known as a seer because of his visions, he had been taken up with the rest of his righteous city, leaving behind a line of mortals with the patriarchal priesthood authority to establish Zion again on the earth. By Abraham's day, however, that authority had apparently disappeared due to generations of apostasy. They cast off the kingdom of heaven from themselves, reports the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer. Even so, Zion had also left precious scriptural records prophesying that righteousness would again be established on the earth. Where these records were before Abraham came on the scene, whether they were hidden away in the earth or locked away in some treasury or perhaps even enshrined in some temple or palace as a now unreadable relic of an earlier age, we do not know. We do know of ancient prophecies about Abraham, which may well have been contained in those records. Prophecies such as found in a text called First Enoch, there the patriarch Enoch foretold in a passage whose context unquestionably refers to Abraham, that one of Enoch's descendants shall be chosen as a plant of righteous judgment, and his posterity shall come forth as the plant of eternal righteousness. Enoch's great-grandson Noah, according to a recently restored column of the Genesis Apocryphon, similarly saw in vision and recorded that from his posterity will spring a righteous plant that will stand forever. Another prophecy whose context seemed necessarily to refer to Abraham, and according to Pseudophilo, on the day that Abraham's great-great-grandmother gave birth to her son Sarug, she foretold, From this one there will be born in the fourth generation one who will set his dwelling on high and will be called perfect and blameless, and he will be father of nations and his covenant will not be broken, and his seed will be multiplied forever. 
Abraham was the hope of Zion, a Zion long since fled from the world. Heading, Ur of the Chaldees. Thus had the world become at the time when, in the words of John Taylor, a singular kind of personage appeared on the stage of action called Abraham. The particular stage on which he appeared, as attested in the Bible, Book of Abraham, and numerous ancient sources, was Ur of the Chaldees. Most Bible maps equate Abraham's Ur with the great Ur in southern Mesopotamia, in present-day Iraq. After lying buried and in ruins for millennia, the city began to be excavated in the 1850s, the results convincing some that it was the Abraham's native city. But it was Sir Leonard Woolley's celebrated excavations in the 1920s that stirred public imagination. Among the artifacts Woolley unearthed was a gold and lapis lazuli figure of a ram standing with its forefeet and head in the branches of a tree. Now on display in the British Museum, the figure calls to mind Abraham's ram in the thicket and left no doubt in Woolley's mind that he was digging in Abraham's birthplace. His dispatches to London created widespread excitement, and when he later published a book describing his excavation, Ur of the Chaldees, it was full of references to Abraham, who later became the subject of another book by Woolley called Abraham, Recent Discoveries and Hebrew Origins. Public opinion since has generally followed Woolley in his location about Abraham's Ur, but in 1982, when Cornell University Press published a revised and updated version of Woolley's book on Ur, the reviser made a monumental alteration, which he explained in the preface. Ur's fame as the birthplace of Abraham has given its special position in the literary legacy of Judaism and Islam. Contrary to the view consistently argued by Woolley, there is no actual proof that Tel el Mukayar, the Ur of this book, was identical with Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. Therefore, it seemed best to write of the excavation of Ur at this time without mention of Abraham. It was a wise decision, for as scholars of the Bible had long recognized, the great Ur of the south was not Ur of the Chaldees until long after Abraham's day, making it an anachronism. So, where is Abraham's Ur? According to Genesis, when the aged Abraham sends his servant back to the country and kindred to find a wife for Isaac, it is to the city of Nahor in northern Mesopotamia. It was this region, insisted the assiduous biblical scholar Nachmanides in the 13th century, that was always the habitat of Abraham's ancestors and where he himself was born. A similar conclusion is reached by the modern eminent biblical scholar Klaus Westermann, who insists that Upper Mesopotamia, in the region of Haran, was the place of origin of the patriarchs. There is no trace of any connection with Ur in the south. That there is only the name. Not everyone agrees with Westermann. The issue of northern versus southern Ur continues to be disputed, as it has been in the pages of Biblical Archaeology Review, but a majority of scholars now favor the northern Ur, and for compelling reasons. Abraham and his family follow customs from the from the area of northern Mesopotamia, which contained various places that in antiquity bore or contained the name Ur, or a close variation. The name Nimrod, Abraham's rival, also occurs as a place name in a number of locations in the region. Latter-day Saints have an additional reason for locating Abraham's Ur somewhere in northern Mesopotamia. As we will see, the Book of Abraham depicts heavy... Egyptian influence there during Abraham's day, making the southern location impossible. 
Ancient Egypt never exercised control over the southern Ur, but it did in Upper Palestine and in the region of Urfa. Even without the Book of Abraham, however, a number of eminent biblical scholars assert that Abraham's Ur of the Chaldees has to have been in northern Mesopotamia and point to the most likely location as the modern Turkish city of Urfa. Urfa is not the only place in the northern region that claims the distinction of being Abraham's birthplace, but its claim is particularly compelling. Urfa was previously called Edessa, but before it was known as Ereka or Orge, both names appearing to contain the name Ur. Founded by Abraham's nemesis Nimrod as the city where he ruled, Landmarks of the city memorialize both men. The names of Nimrod and Abraham cling to this city and its environs to the present time. Located in southeastern Turkey, some 25 miles north of Haran, Urfa happens also to be the region of other sites that have been identified as ancient cities bearing the names of several of Abraham's immediate ancestors. In Urfa is a cave that was thought to be Abraham's birthplace long before the city of Urfa came under Islamic control. It is now a Muslim shrine located just a stone's throw away from where Abraham is said to have been saved by divine intervention when Nimrod tried to take his life. But as neatly as the evidence seems to point to Urfa, does it really matter where Abraham was born? In Gianni Grazzotto's masterful biography of Columbus, whose birthplace is claimed by various countries, the chapter analyzing the explorer's native land is titled The Irrelevant Country. Would history have been different, Granzato asks, if Columbus had not been born in Genoa? After all, wherever Columbus's birthplace, he left it early to pursue his dreams, and dreams have no native country. So it is with Abraham's Ur. Wherever it was, he would eventually leave it behind to go forth and be a blessing to the world, and blessings have no native country. Heading, A Remarkable and Portentous Birth as there were ten generations from Adam to Noah, so likewise, according to Jewish sources, there were ten from Noah to Abraham, although some sources say eleven. And it was indeed high time for that friend of God should make his appearance upon the earth, for already there had arisen a pretender who audaciously claimed the patriarchal authority of Zion to rule over the human race and all living things, the proud and powerful King Nimrod. He is mentioned in both Bible and the Book of Mormon as a mighty hunter, and echoes of his name survive yet today in several ancient places, including in the region of Turkey that contains the city of Urfa. The name Nimrod appears to derive from the Hebrew word to rebel. While tradition held him to be a deceiver, according to Jewish sources, his claim of divine authority to rule the world was based on the patriarchal garment he had in his possession, the garment handed down from Adam through Noah and then stolen from him. Donning the garment of Zion, he sought mightily to create a facade of Zion and the harmony by which it is known. Having gathered mankind in a monumental building project, Nimrod could turn the resulting sense of unity to his own ends. He would conveniently take all the glory, even as Satan had attempted in the Grand Council in Heaven. Nimrod was indeed the very antithesis of Zion. But despite the outward trappings of Zion, what Nimrod had established was not the peaceable earthly kingdom of God, but the military earthly dominion of Satan. Nimrod had subdued nations and extended his kingdom far and wide and is remembered in legend as one of the most ruthlessly effective conquerors ever. He held sway over the entire world, says Turkish Islamic source. 
The profile of Nimrod, the conqueror, as painted by tradition, seems to correspond closely to what historical sources say about the ideal of kingship in the ancient Hittite empire, the likely location for the scene. According to such sources, the Hittite king was the supreme military commander of his people, while the ideology of kingship demanded that he demonstrate his fitness to rule by doing great military deeds comparable with and where possible, surpassing the achievements of his predecessors. Military expansion became an ideology in its own right, a true sport of the kings. Indeed, one of the Hittite kings from this same era recorded his military exploits in terms of a lion pouncing upon his prey and destroying it without mercy, an image of ruthless savagery that was to become a regular symbol of Hittite power. Legend further remembers Nimrod as the most wicked of any man since the flood, imposing idolatry and all manner of evil practices on his subjects and forcing them to worship him as a god. Nimrod made men forget the love and worship of the true God, the creator of the universe, and led them on a path of sin and transgression. Thus Nimrod the hunter hunted not only great beasts, but also the souls of men, seeking to turn them away from God. We are reminded of the Book of Mormon's exclamation, How much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed? Among those led astray was the man who would be Abraham's father, Terah, who is depicted in legend as extremely talented and successful, occupying a high position of power in Nimrod's court. As the prince of Nimrod's host, Terah was very great in the sight of the king and his subjects, and the king and princes loved him, and they elevated him very high. In that violent age of conflict and conquest, the world no doubt seemed to be determined by battles, not unlike a latter age, about which one writer observed, Nobody thought of babies. Everyone was thinking of battles. We fancy God can manage his world only with great battalions, when all the time he is doing it with beautiful babies. When a wrong wants writing, when a truth wants preaching, God sends a baby in the world to do it. And so it happened at that dark time of the world when, as Maimonides explained, the turning point came with the appearance of Abraham. Despite Nimrod's increasing power and arrogance, he lived in constant fear of losing his throne. His concern heightened as a Samaritan source upon being advised by his wise men that they had seen in the book of signs, which had been handed down to them, that there would arise a man destined to overthrow the idols and smite the idol worshippers. When his wise men pinpointed the projected date of birth, Nimrod imprisoned temporarily the men of his kingdom to prevent the conception of this dangerous infant. But as an unusual sign in the heavens created a panic that allowed Terah, in response to a vision that came to him, to escape unnoticed to be with his wife and then slip back into prison. Meanwhile, when Nimrod's wizards saw that the sign had been lifted, they exclaimed, The child has reached the womb of his mother. Nimrod released the prisoners, himself still a captive to an ever-deepening anxiety. Portents of trouble continued to appear. According to a Turkish account from early Islamic tradition, Nimrod had a dream in which he saw his throne overturned by a charging ram. Nimrod's soothsayers interpreted the dream to mean that a boy would be born who would ruin Nimrod's empire. In the Jewish version of the story, one night Nimrod's astrologers witnessed an amazing phenomenon in the sky as a star rose in the east and seemed to swallow up the four stars in the four corners of the heavens. Hastening to their king, the astrologers reported that the event as the sign that the infant was born that day who was destined to rule the world and overthrow Nimrod's kingdom. 
Various ancient sources report a heinous crime by the arrogant and cruel Nimrod as he ordered a terrible slaughter. He had a proclamation published throughout his whole kingdom summoning all of the architects to build a great house for him. After it was completed, he issued a second proclamation summoning all pregnant women thither, and there they were to remain until their confinement. Officers were appointed to take the women to the house, and guards were stationed in it and about it and to prevent the woman, women from escaping thence. He furthermore sent midwives to the house and commanded them to slay the men children at their mother's breasts. But if a woman bore a girl, she had was arrayed in linen, silk, and embroidered garments and led forth from the house of detention amid great honors. No less than 70,000 children were slaughtered thus. If such a thing sounds too evil to be real, one need only remember the tragic slaughter of the infants that would threaten the life of both Moses and Jesus at each, as each of them entered mortality. Satan was waiting for these particular infants to, and determined to thwart their foreordained missions. The infant Abraham was saved only by being born in a cave and hidden away there for a time. Let there be light is how one modern Jewish writer describes Abraham's entrance into history, and the phrase is aptly descriptive of the signal birth that began to disperse the spiritual darkness of that age. At Abraham's birth, the cave to which his mother was fled was filled with the light of the child's countenance, as with the splendor of the sun. Describing Abraham's birth, an Ethiopic source adds that the bright light so astonished those present that they fell to the ground, whereupon there was heard an outcry and a mighty voice, which said, Woe is me, woe is me! There has just been born him that shall crush my kingdom to dust. And the voice wept. Thus were the powers of both heaven and hell stirred when this infant, training clouds of glory, to borrow William Woodworth poetic language, came to the realms of light into the spiritually dark world of that day. Abraham was the prince in the heavens, noted John Taylor, and by right came to the earth in his time to accomplish the things given him to do. With Abraham's birth, according to Jewish tradition, desolation was over and a new light began to shine upon humanity. Even so, it was an extremely dangerous place to be born, a culture of death in which many infants did not survive. The name he was given, Abram, meaning father is exalted, or the father is high, or the father lifts himself on high refers, says one legend, to Terah's high status in Nimrod's court. Terah called the name of his son that was born to him Abram, because the king had raised him in those days and dignified him above all the princes that were with him. As would be the case with so much in the life of Abraham, even his entrance into mortality echoed the past and foreshadowed the future. The, bright, the brilliant light at his birth echoed that at creation, when Christ the Creator, the light of the world, had formed the great celestial luminary that would shine in the darkness and bring light to the earth. The light at Abraham's birth also foreshadowed the time when the Creator would be born in the flesh as a light shining in spiritual dark in a spiritually dark world. Even Christian sources further describe a brilliant light that surrounded the newborn infant Jesus. As Abraham was prophesied to arise as a plant of righteousness in a corrupt world, so Isaiah prophesied that the Savior would grow up as a tender plant out of dry ground. As a new star arose in the east when Abraham was born in a cave, so did it happen with the Savior, whose birth, according to early Christian sources, was also in a cave. The terrible slaughter of the infants at Abraham's birth was repeated at the birth of Moses and again at the birth of the Savior. In fact, according to rabbinic tradition, Abraham's entire life prefigured the future history of Israel in such a comprehensive way that in his biography lives out the future history of Israel. 
Everything that Abraham experienced, maintained the Jewish sages, has also been experienced by his descendants. If Isaiah's writings are valuable for prophesying all of Israel's future, so Abraham's life is a rich portrait, portending to the same future, for whatever happened to him would occur to his descendants. For example, his birth looks ahead also to his latter-day descendant, Joseph Smith, whose birth was also prophesied anciently by the patriarch Joseph and later by Joseph Smith's grandfather, Asel Smith, when he foretold that one of his descendants would promulgate a work to revolutionize the world of religious faith. And as powers of darkness seemed poised to persecute the infant Abraham, so it was with Joseph Smith, who commented that the adversary was aware at a very early period of my life that I was destined to prove a disturber, and an annoyer of his kingdom. Else why should the powers of darkness combine against me? Why the opposition and persecution that arose against me, almost in my infancy? Heading, Purity and Prayer in Seeking God Despite the opposition, Joseph Smith would go on to seek God in prayer and experience the first vision. In an 1832 account of that remarkable theophany, the prophet explained how he gained confidence in the Creator's existence and His mercy by reflecting on his creations. I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world, of mankind, the contentions and divisions, the wickedness, and the abominations in the darkness, and I felt to mourn for my own sins and for the sins of the world. I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon, rolling in her majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in their courses, and earth also upon which I stood, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man walking forth upon the face of the earth, when I considered these things in my heart, and exclaimed, that all these bear testimony and bespeak in an omnipotent power, a being who maketh laws, therefore I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there were none else to whom I could go. As Hugh Nibley has pointed out, this was exactly the case of young Abraham, who, as a child, found there was none else to whom he could go for truth, and began his ardent and unrelenting search for God. It is this theme of seeking that appears so prominently in the opening lines of the Book of Abraham, and similarly in numerous ancient texts and traditions, the medieval Jewish sage Maimonides wrote of young Abraham, that when this giant was weaned, he began to ponder by day and by night, and he would wonder, How is it possible that this fear moves constantly without there being a mover? Or one to turn it, for it is impossible that it turns itself. And he had no teacher or source of knowledge, but he was sunk among senseless idol worshippers in Ur of the Chaldeans. But his mind roamed in search of understanding, as Nibley noted. From infancy, he was asking searching questions about God, the cosmos, and the way of men, embarrassing questions. At just three years of age, as one source has it, the boy already began to understand the nature of God, so that the next year he resisted when his grandfather tried to teach him about the worship of idols. Nor could Abraham's father, despite long and persistent efforts, persuade his son to revere the statues. Young Abraham was alone with God, says Hugh Nibley, dependent on no man and no traditions, beginning, as it were, from scratch. Having no human teachers, he must think things out for himself until he receives light from above. The rabbis report that Abraham's own father did not teach him, nor did he have a master to teach him. From whom, then, did Abraham learn Torah? It was the Holy One. And where was Abraham's mother in all of this? What role did she play in the formation of this man who would change the world? Although not mentioned in the Bible or in the book of Abraham, she was referred to in several old sources, even if they disagree on her name. 
She is credited with saving her infant son's life from the murderous mechanizations of the king and bringing Abraham safely into the world, and had enough material instinct to later try to persuade her son to save his own life by renouncing his opposition to idolatry. According to a midrash called the Masa Avram Avenue, or works of our father Abraham, she was an idolater, and her failure to figure in any of the accounts describing young Abraham's search for God indicates her lack of spiritual depth and inability to provide guidance on such matters. Some traditions even tell that it was the son who eventually tried to tutor the mother, mother in spiritual things. In Abraham's own book, in the book of Abraham, he expressly mentions the idolatry of his father, but says no word about his mother. The silence is revealing both of her failure to provide guidance, of his own sensitivity in not speaking ill of the woman who had brought him into the world and whom he loved despite her faults. If young Abraham had no maternal guidance, what he apparently did have was access to the most learned minds and advanced knowledge of his day. The assemblage of scholars and texts located at the royal court where his father occupied a position of power second only to Nimrod himself. Young Abraham was no stranger to Nimrod's court. An ancient Samaritan source even recounts that when Abraham came of age, Nimrod placed him under his own command, and he was among those who stood before him to wait on him. Masa Avram Avenu recounts that on one occasion, as the king Nimrod sat upon the throne of his kingdom, he sent for Abraham to come to him with his father Terah, and Abraham passed before the governors and officers until he reached the royal throne. As with Moses, who would be raised amid the fabling fabled learning of the Egyptian court, young Abraham was exposed to the best and brightest of his day. Abraham, from his birth, had an upbringing among the Chaldeans, reported George Sincelius, and from them he was taught in their astrology and in all the rest of their wisdom, in which, says Georgius Sidrenus, he was thoroughly instructed. The elite education afforded young Abraham the training of his mind and his exposure to the wisdom of the world would be important in his development, but he found it devoid of the most important truths for which he had been searching, truths long since distorted or expunged and forgotten altogether. In the spiritual and emotional solitude in which he found himself, young Abraham thought and pondered deeply, sensing that somehow he was not alone. The copious compiler of Jewish legends, Louis Ginsburg, noted that in all the sources stressed is laid upon the fact that Abraham came to know God through his own reasoning about the universe and its ruler who must ne necessarily exist. The legends describe how the young man carefully observed the earth and the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the wonders in his heart. Who created heaven and earth and me? According to Byzantine tradition, young Abraham was an astronomer extremely well trained by his father. It is known that the people of Abraham's day studied the heavens carefully as astrologers and even worshipped the stars and heavenly bodies. But as the child Abraham thoughtfully gazed at those same stars, he came to see that the creations bore witness of the majesty of their creator, a truth to be declared by one of his posterity. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Hence, as related by Maimonides, by his diligence in seeking the Almighty, Abraham finally achieved the true way and understood he knew that there is one God who moves the spheres, who created everything, and there is none besides him. He knew that the whole world was in error. A thousand years before the Eritude Aristotle would 
posit the prime mover of the universe, the boy Abraham discovered the truth on his own. But not quite on his own, for as he drew near to the Creator, he sensed the Creator drawing near to him. God inspired Abraham, declared Elder Wilford Woodruff, and his eyes were opened so that he saw and understood something of the dealings of the Lord with the children of men. He understood that there was a God in heaven, a living and true God, and that no man should worship any other God but him. And as Abraham came to understand the reality of the Creator, he came to understand something also about the Creator's most prominent trait. According to a medieval Jewish source, when Abraham our father arrived, he looked and saw, investigated and understood the great secret of the blessed God and how he had created the world through the chesed. Abraham too held fast to this quality. So just as God had created the world through chesed, so did Abraham know his creator through chesed. Young Abraham discovered, in other words, what Joseph Smith would discover by reflecting on the majesty of God's creations, not only the reality of the Creator, but the reality of his merciful love that had prompted such a creation. Abraham's experience constitutes a timeless lesson, insisted Moses Maimonides, for only through knowledge of God's handiwork can one fulfill the commandments, to love and stand in awe of God. The continuing relevance of Abraham's experience is insisted on by a modern rabbi who wrote that Abraham's divine discoveries and outgoing relationship with the Creator serve as a model for us, his spiritual progeny. Latter-day Saints immediately think of the revelation inviting their own contemplation of the Creator's handiwork. For any man who has seen any or the least of these, the earth, sun, moon, and stars, has seen God moving in his majesty and power. Following the divine lead, Abraham himself practiced said which in the human realm means not only loving kindness and mercy, but also righteous conduct. Hence, as a modern scholar expressed, Yahweh, Jehovah, was the God of Abraham. Abraham was his servant. Theirs was a distinct relationship which imposed upon them certain rights and duties, a relationship of mutual reciprocity expressed by chesed. It is the same principle that Moroni would express in his dialogue with the Lord, I know that this love which thou hast for the children of men is charity, wherefore, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit the place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. This principle of righteousness, loving kindness, or charity would become the governing principle of Abraham's life, for which he is still remembered among his Jewish descendants as the embodiment of Hesed. For the decisive factor in Abraham's personality was the unceasing urge to help others. It is also a decisive factor dis demonstrating Abraham's descent. For, according to the Talmud, performing deeds of loving-kindness is a distinguishing characteristic of all the descendants of Abraham. The other side of the coin, according to Maimonides, is that cruelty and impudence are not qualities of the seed of Abraham, our father. By understanding God and his love, Abraham came also to understand that mankind was in grave error. According to Jubilees, the child began to realize the errors of the earth, that everyone was going astray after the statutes and after impurity, when he was two weeks of years, 14 years, he separated from his father in order not to worship idols with him. He began to pray to the creator of all that he would save him from the errors of mankind and that it might not fall to his share to go astray after impurity and wickedness. In that same year, according to George Senseus, Abraham discovered the God of the universe and worshipped him. Young Abraham's choice to conform his will to that of the Almighty is remembered in Jewish tradition as presenting God with a gift that even he in all his infinite power could not fashion for himself. For even God cannot guarantee that man's mind and heart would choose truth over evil, light over darkness, spirit over flesh. 
It is the great lesson of mortality, as explained by President Boyd K. Packer. Obedience to God can be the very highest expression of independence. Just think of giving to him the one thing, the one gift that he would never take. Obedience. That which God will never take by force, he will accept when freely given, and he will then return to you freedom that you can hardly dream of. Young Abraham's prayer that God would keep him from impurity is an important window into his soul which purity of heart is further attested in other sources. In the Apocalypse of Abraham, young Abraham determines that I will set my mind on what is pure. The church fathers likewise knew that Abraham was clean of heart, or, in the words of the learned Origen, pure in heart. The Quran relates that Abraham came before the Lord with a pure heart, while the medieval Muslim historian El-Muswadi stated that Abraham was pure from sin, and thereby received the strength of God. Without probably ever having heard of the ancient Zion, young Abraham was establishing it anew in his own heart. For as a modern relation states, this is Zion, the pure in heart. He is a model for anyone and everyone aspiring to Zion. According to Brigham Young, when we conclude to make Zion, we will make it, and this work commences in the heart of each person. Abraham's heart was also contrite, as noted in Jewish tradition, an important key to opening the door of revelation and blessing as seen as... In the first words God ever spoke to Abraham's descendant Nephi, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because of thy faith, for thou hast sought me diligently with lowliness of heart. Such humility is one of the distinguishing characteristics of a true disciple of our father Abraham. According to rabbinic sources, it is also the key to receiving the cleansing power of the atonement of Christ, who was crucified for the remission of sins unto the contrite heart. As young Abraham drew near to the Almighty, the Almighty drew near to him. When God saw how he yearned to find him, he revealed himself unto him and spoke with him, says the Zohar. In the Apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham attests that the true God has sought me out in the perplexity of my thoughts. An important Ethiopic text relates that in response to the lad's prayer, there appeared unto him a chariot of fire which blazed. Abraham was terrified and fell to the ground, but was assured by the voice of God, saying, Fear thou not, stand upright. Only in time would Abraham come to appreciate the significance of the chariot and all that it portended for him, including divine protection. But even now, there was again a seer on the earth, one who had seen beyond the mortal realm. According to the Zohar, Abraham loved righteousness. This was Abraham's love of God, in which he excelled all his contemporaries, who were obstinate of heart and far from righteousness. Abraham's own heart, according to rabbinic tradition, was like the mighty cedar, which was constantly directed heavenward, straight and true. Indeed, Abraham is honored in Judaism as the supreme example of those who love God and keep his commandments. The book of Abraham unerringly reveals this same Abraham, who, in the opening lines of his own record, tells how he sought for the blessings of the fathers, having been myself a follower of righteousness, and desiring also to be a great follower of righteousness a greater follower of righteousness, and to keep the commandments of God. Whereas told by Franklin Richards, Abraham loved righteousness and hungered for more righteousness. In Nibley's words, it was Abraham's unique merit that he loved righteousness in a hard-hearted and wicked generation, without waiting for others to show him the way. By following righteousness, Abraham was also following his ancient forefathers, for as Noah is described in Genesis as Zadok, or righteous, so Abraham's righteousness is emphasized in ancient sources. Turkish tradition records the commitment of young Abraham, I will live a righteous life. Abraham is remembered in the Quran as Abraham the righteous, Sadiq. 
and likewise stands out in Jewish tradition as an example par excellence with the true Zadok, the righteous man who fears God and serves him. In the Damascus document produced by the Dead Sea Scrolls Jewish community, Abraham is held up as an example of one who did not choose his own will, but rather kept the commandments of God. And the words of a more modern Jewish writer speaking of Abraham's relationship with God, it seems that it was Abraham's nature to be submissive, that he was an innately gentle, humble man. Abraham's exceptional righteousness and fear of God set an example for his descendants who seek Zion, and whoever possesses the same fear of God that Abraham possessed, says a medieval Jewish text, will endeavor to improve himself and hasten to beautify his soul and purify his soul in order to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, whoever fears God, as Abraham did, will seek Zion as he sought it. Heading Idolatry and its Evils the obstinacy of Abraham's people included ostentatious ceremonies designed to legitimize the idols that they were central to the culture. Mesopotamian sources describe the sophisticated rituals and incantations employed by the artisans and priests to bring into being the cult statues, which, after proper opening of the mouth and the duly impressive dedication rites, were actually considered to be born of the gods, having become earthly manifestations of heavenly powers. Why the elaborate facade? Because in the end, these statues provided the ultimate convenience for their owners, allowing in the words of the Lord, containing the idolatry of our own day, every man to walk in his own way after the image of his own God. Idolatry was in Abraham's day what it has always been, as articulated by the early church father Tetrullian. The chief crime of mankind, the supreme guilt of the world, for even if Every sin retains its own identity, and even if each is destined for judgment under its own name, each is still committed under idolatry. According to Abraham's record, mankind had turned from their righteousness and from the holy commandments which the Lord their God had given them, unto the worshipping of gods and the heathen, or as mentioned in Jubilees, statues, images, and unclean things. But this worship was of a perverted sort that not only condoned any conduct, but even included ritual acts of gross immorality as part of the so-called fertility rites. Thus, the wickedness went beyond the widespread individual acts, having become a part of the customs, cultures, norms, and even laws. Not since the generation of the flood had the earth seen such depraved anti-family society. There appeared to be little justice, certainly no chastity or decency, in the operation of this establishment, says a modern writer about the flagrantly immortal practices, immoral practices of Abraham's day, practices said to be required by the gods inhabiting the idols. In a world of rampant immorality, Abraham lived the law of chastity. The great paradox of the statues then was that while they purported to be the earthly manifestation of gods, they were in fact tools of the devil, as so emphatically expressed in the Book of Mormon's condemnation of idolatry, Woe unto those that worship idols, for the devil of all devils delighteth in them. When one scholar describes Abraham's society as one of crass polytheism and demonology, it is no exaggeration for ancient sources tell of people conversing with devils, who demanded not only the sacrifice of virtue, but also the lives of children. It is reported that the people slaughtered their sons and their daughters to the devils, and they poured out innocent blood. Heading, Standing for Truth Young Abraham is said to have despised the idols and held in abomination their graven images, boldly raising his voice against idolatry. According to Jubilees, Abraham admonished his father, What help and advantage do we get from these idols before which you worship and prostrate yourself? 
For there is no spirit in them, because they are dumb. They are an error of the mind. Do not worship them. Worship the God of heaven. He created everything, and all life comes from his presence. Why do you worship these things which have no spirit in them? For they are made by the hands, and carry them upon their shoulders. You receive no help from them, but instead they are a great shame for those who make them, and an error of mind for those who worship them. Do not worship them. Terah acknowledged the truth of these words, but stated that if he didn't go along with the idolatrous practices of the people, they will kill me. Be quiet, my son, so that they do not kill you. In another version of the story told in the Apocalypse of Abraham, perhaps referring to another occasion, Abraham recounts that when he told Terah that his idols were a sham, he became angry with me because I had spoken harsh words against his gods. According to the Quran, Abraham pled with Terah to not worship Satan, lest the chastisement from the most gracious befall thee. At which Terah angrily retorted, Dost thou dislike my gods, O Abraham? Indeed, if thou desist not, I shall most certainly cause thee to be stoned to death. Now be gone from me for good. To which Abraham replied, Peace be upon thee. I shall ask my sustainer to forgive thee, for behold, he has always been kind to me. The irony of such threats to young Abraham is that he had already proven himself extremely valuable to society. Jubilees tells that during planting, before the seed could be plowed under, it would be eaten by the ravens who thus reduced the people to poverty. Abraham accompanied the planters and continually ran at the ravens before they could land, shouting and ordering them to return whence they came. He persisted tirelessly and was so successful that his reputation grew large throughout the entire land of the Chaldeans. As the following harvest produced plenty, the next year he invented a device to be used during plowing that would insert the seed into the ground and cover it up. Abraham's invention was widely used, solving the problem of the birds and bringing fame to the youthful Abraham. Hence it was no small matter when he began, despite his warnings of his father, to publicly oppose idolatry. The courageous lad protested in public and in private against the errors of the time, raising his voice both long and loud as he insisted that the idols are not gods that can offer deliverance. He alone, of those everywhere suffering from those errors of idols, recognized the true God and preached the creator of all things. His listeners countered, Would you turn us away from the faith of our fathers and introduce us to another religion? To which Abraham replied, Your ancestor adhered to a vain faith. I am summoning you to the right path. He spoke with fervor but not arrogance. He preached righteousness without being self-righteous. Demonstrating the contrast between the helpless idols and the true God of heaven, the young man explained that the sustainer of all the worlds has created me and is the one who guides me and who gives me to eat and to drink. And when I fall ill, restores me to health. And who in the resurrection will bring me back to life? And whom I hope will forgive me of faults on judgment day? The words are remarkably similar to those later used by Abraham's descendant, King Benjamin. Hence, Abraham offered a new vision of man's purpose and identity or, and destiny, not wallowing in the pleasure or the arrogance of power, but clinging to God to find him and to please him, these were man's primary purpose, but as Abraham lamented, his listeners utterly refused to hearken to his voice. Heading, Object Lesson An ancient and widespread legend tells of bold action taken by the young Abraham. The story is not found in the Bible, but is the most oft-repeated Abrahamic narrative in the Quran. It is found in numerous ancient Jewish sources and repeated by Brigham Young, John Taylor, and Wilfred Woodruff. 
As recounted by Jewish sources, it began when the young Abraham found himself alone in a room full of idols. But one important source, the Masal of Ramavanu, specifies that this was not just any occasion and not just any room full of idols. The event was a major religious festival called by King Nimrod himself and was centered at Nimrod's pagan temple. Abraham had been urged to attend but his father, by his father, but declined to go and was instructed to stay behind to guard the idols, and the king's idols were also there, says Masah. When Abraham was all alone, he acted boldly and decisively. Some sources report that the Spirit of God came upon him. As recounted by the Masah of Ramavanu, he took an axe in his hand, and he saw the idols of the king sitting, and he said, The Eternal, he is God. And he pushed them off their thrones to the ground, and he smote them mightily. With the large ones he began, and with the small ones he finished. He lopped off this one's hands, he cut off this one's heads, and blinded this one's eyes, and he broke that one's legs, until all of them were broken. Then, placing the axe in the hands of the largest idol, Abraham left. When his father and the king returned and discovered the wreckage, they were wroth. The king commanded that Abraham be brought before him. When they brought him, the king and his ministers said to him, Why did you shatter our gods? He said unto them, I didn't break them, no. Rather, the large one of them smashed them. Don't you see the axe in his hand? And if you won't believe it, ask him and he will tell. And the king heard his words and became angry to the point of killing him. Quote, Abram found guilty of destroying idols. End quote. Had there been a newspaper at the time, it might have carried this shocking headline, as one chronicle imaginatively reconstructs. Abraham's actions posed a challenge to the whole society, steeped in idolatry. The whole world stood on one side and Abram on the other, said the rabbis. Or in Nibley's words, it was Abraham against the whole society, including the king himself. And with all the world going in one direction, he steadily pursues his course in the opposite direction. But if Abraham was against the whole world, it was only because he was truly for the whole world. For even when they preach repentance and thunder words of warnings, the prophets bring nothing but good news and glad tidings of great joy. In a world that had strayed as far away from Zion as possible, one pure lad was courageously seeking to reestablish it and setting a pattern for his posterity. It is the mark of a descendant of Abraham that he is able to swim against the tide, to stand up for what he believes, and even though he be in the minority, not be corrupted by the pressures of the environment. Abraham's actions points to the fact that it is not enough to merely serve as an example of goodness. Sometimes it is necessary to fight actively to eradicate evil.